Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Right. Welcome, everybody, to uh, another issue of Behind the Knife. I'm Adam Yope. I'm the Chief of Surgical Oncology at UT Southwestern, and I'm joined uh, by two future leaders in surgical oncology, uh, Dr. Gilbert uh, Marimwa, who's currently a research resident at UT Southwestern, and I'm also joined by Dr. Caitlin Hester, uh, who is an assistant professor of surgery and surgical oncology at the University at Miami. Uh, so after a two-year run with, the, with my colleagues, uh, we're bringing this to an end uh, with surgical oncology. Uh, and this will be our last uh, podcast. And as we decided to do it, we decided to make this into a, a, a so-called journal club. Uh, and we, we bowed down to the area of pancreatic odudinectomy in honor of Dr. Hester, her favorite operation. Sure is. And we couldn't think of a more fitting way to go out than to talk about the newly published randomized control trial uh, discussing antibiotic or antimicrobial uh, prophylaxis uh, prior to, to the Whipple procedure and really highlighting some innovative ways that we did the trial um, with a pragmatic approach uh, and some of the kind of the discuss, is this really going to change the management of how we give antibiotics for Whipple procedure? So to jump right into it, why don't uh, Gilbert, can you really give us a little background and really set the stage for why this trial was needed? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so it'll come as no surprise to any of our listeners that although the perioperative mortality has dropped to less than 2% for patients undergoing a Whipple, um, the operation still carries a high morbidity. And the most common source of severe perioperative morbidity are surgical site infections and postoperative pancreatic fistula. So these complications occur in more than 30% of patients. And so making mitigation strategies such as antimicrobial prophylaxis is important to figure out how we can continue to move the needle here for the patients. Yeah, I think that's important. Uh, as we've gotten better as surgeons and taking care of these patients, now we have to look for things that are, are going to improve the quality of life and get the patients back to, to, um, possibly oncologic therapy. So Kayla, now that you're practicing, now you're out of fellowship, uh, you're building an incredibly robust practice doing pancreatic surgery at the University of Miami. What do you give your patients for preoperative uh, antibiotics, uh, especially for a Whipple procedure? And what are some of the challenges associated with infections in this group of patients? Well, I, I think it's important to set the stage um, and say that this is a highly debated topic amongst um, HPB surgical oncologists. Um, it's actually very interesting. Um, the SCIP actually recommends that we use um, a first or second generation cephalosporin for prophylaxis for this operation. Now, even though those are the current recommendations in 2023, I think a lot of surgeons use different uh, antibiotic choices. I know Dr. Yope has always used Zosin. Um, when I was in residency with other HPB surgical oncologists, uh, they often use cefoxetin. At MD Anderson, every HPB surgeon that I worked with uh, used ertapenem. 
Um, and so I think it's really interesting. There was no standard practice despite what the SCIP recommendations are. So I think that this trial is extremely important in helping answer these questions. Um, I think the, the difficulty in uh, prophylacting our patients for a Whipple operation is that, you know, these patients are at a much higher risk of getting infections postoperatively from a, a PJ leak. And especially patients who have had indwelling stents during their neoadjuvant therapy who came in with obstruction, they're at increased risk of having uh, resistant um, uh, strains of enterococcus, which have increased the risk of PJ leaks. So I think it's important to know which antibiotics work the best. And, and we'll talk about the details of this study and whether it will change my practice or not. Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head, Caitlin. Um, there's really been kind of a, a lack of a consensus about what antibiotics should be given in the perioperative period in patients undergoing uh, Whipple's. The SCIP guidelines, so it's a, the SCIP guidelines are, it's a guideline set forth by a national group that recommend certain antibiotics for certain procedures. The current guidelines actually recommend the cephalosporins and the second generation with mefoxetin or cefoxetin. And so it's really been interesting to see what percentage of, of institutions actually follow the SCIP guidelines and what don't. I personally have never really followed the SCIP guidelines for this. I don't know if it was right or wrong, but this really kind of gave birth to why the need and the rationale for performing this study. Uh, Gilbert, can you set it, set it up a little bit for us, how the study looked to answer this question of what antibiotics should be given uh, in the perioperative period? Yeah, so this was a pragmatic, as you mentioned, registry-linked, randomized, open-label phase three clinical trial, um, and it really compared Ibrocillin, Tazobactam, or Zosin to standard of care cefoxetine as the perioperative antimicrobial prophylaxis for pancreatic duodenectomy. So this is really the first registry-linked surgical trial completed in North America, um, and really capitalized on the ACS NISQIP platform to abstract data as the trial went on. And impressively, this whole trial was completed without any external funding. Yeah, that's right. It was, uh, it's an incredible, I think, effort. And I, you, you can't highlight enough how folks across the country, how institutions across the country really joined together. As Gilbert, as you mentioned, there were no, there was really no outside funding. So there were 26 centers um, that actually participated. And how this all came about is um, in a very interesting way. Mike D'Angelica, who's one of the uh, surgical oncologists and HPV surgeons at Memorial Sloan Kettering and I were discussing kind of running a clinical trial through the apparatus through a, a group called the HPBA, the America's Hepatobiliary, Hepatopancreatic Biliary Association. Uh, and we really debated about what was going to be that first clinical trial that we needed to do. Of course, everybody had these really pie in the sky, wanted to do chemotherapy trials, but then we realized that with the limited funding that was available and this had to be very pragmatic, we noticed after talking to Henry Pitt, who's kind of the, the godfather, so to speak, of the NISQIP targeted pancreatectomy program that the SSI rate or the surgical site infection rate for pancreas resections, especially a Whipple procedure done in an open fashion, uh, was quite high. 
And so we went back, we had worked with Cliff Coe, who's the kind of the clinical leader of, of NISQIP to get the data of what actually is, was the SSI rate um, and what antibiotics were given. And it, it turned out that the majority of Whipple procedures done in the United States uh, were given uh, mefoxetin or, or cefoxetin as the primary antibiotic of choice. And the, the actual SSI rate was exceptionally high. Uh, so we did some, you know, as, as Mike and I are prone to do, we, we did some long discussions about how we could get this trial up and going. Um, and literally, we were able to accrue, you know, essentially seven, over 700 patients to a trial with no funding. Um, and it's just, uh, it's amazing that using this, this NISQIP platform, so all the data was collected in a routine fashion through NISQIP, and it was really a testament to the individual centers, uh, allowing hopefully a practice changing uh, event to happen just based on our, our noticing um, that the infection rate was quite high. Um, maybe Gilbert, you can go through some of the details. I could go on and on about talking about the, the trial and the debates that we had about this, and maybe I can get into that a little bit later on. Uh, but maybe you can go through some of the details of where the trial um, uh, took place. Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, the trial was conducted through 26 centers across the U.S. and Canada. And to your point, to capitalize on the nisclopancreatectomy procedure targeted program. So this allowed data collection of 150 different perioperative variables at the participating centers. And then trial-specific variables that were added included documentation of the perioperative antibiotic administration, any dosing violations, as well as any adverse uh, reactions. And Caitlin, what which patients did we decide to include in the study? Yeah, um, the study included all adult patients, so 18 years and older, undergoing any indication for an elective open pancreatoduodenectomy. So these include all the periampulary pathologies that are indications for Whipple. Um, the majority of these patients, actually, the indication was for pancreatic adenocarcinoma, 60% of the patients in the overall cohort. Um, and it's interesting that 30% uh, received neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So there's still, you can still even see within uh, the demographic table of, of this study, the controversy in the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. There are a lot of questions that we need to answer in the, in the world of pancreas surgery. But we did exclude, or the authors did exclude, um, any patients undergoing a minimally invasive pancreatoduodenectomy and those with antibiotic use in the week prior to surgery, those needing dialysis or with impaired creatinine clearance, and, and those patients who are, were on prolonged steroids were included. 967 uh, patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, and these were stratified for the presence or absence of preoperative biliary stenting. Patients were excluded after randomization if they were not able to proceed with pancreatectomy. So those patients who either had a cold metastatic uh, disease discovered at the time of uh, exploration or locally advanced and couldn't be resected, those patients were excluded. Yeah. So it was interesting how we set it up. So uh, we would look back, like I said, we had looked back through, you know, since we were using the NISQIP platform. So essentially what we had to do, interestingly enough, is 
we had to make sure that every center that we wanted to actually join the study, they had to capture all of their Whipple procedures. So they, how NISQIP captures data within the targeted pancreatic uh, program is, is that in high volume centers, they may not capture every single Whipple done just because of how, how that's the data is actually abstracted. Um, so we went to a large, a lot of the high volume centers and actually got them to get on board with talking to their, actually their abstractors through NISQIP so they could capture every single patient, which again, is, is pretty important how it was done. And then when we set the sample size calculations, uh, we worked with uh, one of the uh, statisticians at Memorial Sloan Kettering named Mitak Gonan, who is, is very close, who I've known for years, and as well as Mike, obviously, D'Angelica has known for years. Uh, and how we determined to do it is we realized in the, the NISQIP, the ACS NISQIP Whipple data, so to speak, uh, there was an overall SSI rate of 20.4%. And so we said, you know, what would be a statistically significant, what would change or be clinically meaningful? Uh, we said an, about a 7% absolute reduction uh, in SSI rate. So going from 20 to 13%. And so that's how we got to the 890 patients. Uh, we did stratify for biliary stenting because there was the theory that both in the data and hypothetically, that biliary stenting was had a more kind of a preponderance or predisposition to having an SSI rate. So that's how we got to the statistics behind it. And then more importantly, which will become more important, we actually had in all clinical trials, when you write them, you actually have to have an early stopping rule or either for futility one way or the other. Um, so what we actually did is, is, is is we, we did an interim analysis. So this was all done by an independent data safety monitoring board um, at 50% accrual. So 340 patients that were valuable. So I think the important thing, which will become very interesting is how quick we were able to accrue patients, number one. And you have to remember a large percentage of the patients that were actually accrued were during the initial stages of COVID, believe it or not. So this was this was pretty cool overall that we're that the trial was actually able to finish so quickly. So before we get to actually what the study showed, maybe Gilbert, you can go on a little bit or tell us a little bit about what the intervention arms were, what the outcomes that we chose. Yeah. So um, patients received their first dose of the antibiotics within an hour from seizure time and got redosed every two to four hours. And then if they got the wrong antibiotic or they were incorrectly dosed or antibiotics continued after 24 hours, um, post-op, they got flagged for a violation of the protocol. Uh, we made sure to still include these patients, though, in the primary analysis based on intention to treat. So our primary endpoint was development of a surgical site infection within 30 days of surgery, um, as, de as defined by the CDC guidelines for superficial deep and organ-space SSIs. And then secondary endpoints included post-operative outcomes. So things like the 30-day mortality, sepsis, septic shock, percutaneous strain placement, any pneumonia, any VTE events, kidney failure, UTI, stroke, MI, um, C. diff and readmission or reoperation. We also looked at length of stay. So the study looked at pancreatectomy specific metrics as well. So things like post-operative delayed gastric emptying and any clinically relevant grade B or C post-operative pancreatic fistula um, was also collected in the data and evaluated as a secondary outcome. Yeah. So essentially we used outcomes that I think we all thought were very important for um, 
you know, for it to be clinically meaningful, number one. And number two, all of this data was actually right in NISPIP to begin with. So we weren't actually collecting uh, very much to any data that was outside of NISQIP. Uh, we did collect some data on biocultures, uh, but that we really kind of left that up to the individual the individual center, whether they could do that or not, or had the funding to actually do that at an individual place. So what we ended up doing is randomizing, the plan was to randomize 967 patients that are randomized. And so the, the data actually showed, you know, 59% were male gender. Average age was 67, so kind of similar to what you would expect uh, in patients undergoing a Whipple procedure. Uh, a little over half, so about 60% of patients had preoperative biliary stenting, and just over a third of patients received neoadjuvant therapy, as, as Dr. Hester had mentioned. Uh, and 63% of their patient of the patients were actually getting their operations for adenocarcinoma. Uh, so. What the actual very interesting thing on the whole trial is, is we were told, you know, not shocking is you're, as when you design these trials and you actually run them, it's not like you are responsible for analyzing the data because it would, it would really be a huge bias. So we actually were asked to stop the trial during the second interim analysis. And it was kind of a, uh, a nerve wracking time because, you know, I remember vividly, uh, Dr. Jinjelic and I talking on the phone, like, well, what the hell is this? You know, what does this mean? Is it stopped because, you know, Zosin was associated with more issues or was it stopped because it actually had, uh, it actually was a positive trial. Um, and by the time the trial was stopped and the second interim analysis was complete, the, the Zosin or the Piprosol and Tazobactam arm had met its primary endpoint uh, with fewer SSIs. Uh, than standard of care suboxetin. So that was at 19.8% in the Zosin group and 33% uh, in the suboxetin group. Uh, they were really consistently significant when you looked at superficial SSIs. Um, so 3.4 versus 9.5% organ space SSI. It didn't really materialize. It was very similar for deep incisional SSI, which is not surprising. So it was a kind of a home run at that point. Um, and that's why the trial was actually stopped early. So Gilbert, is there anything that really jumps out to you about the primary endpoint at all? I personally was not surprised that using a broader spectrum antibiotics led to reduced SSI. Um, but I, I think the data hammered home the point that high perioperative morbidity um, is prevalent after pancreatic oduodenectomy. And so a third of the patients in the standard of care arm experienced SSIs. So making the reduction to 20% was really significant, not just statistically, also clinically. Yeah, that's I right. Wanna, oh, I go ahead. For a second? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think the one thing I found interesting, and I kind of want to pick your brain on this as one of um, the co-authors on this paper. So the historic mark or historic percentage of SSI in these patients was 20%. And we were targeting an absolute risk reduction of 7% to get to a rate of 13% in the Zosin arm. Now, it's interesting to me that the, the Zosin arm, the, the rate of SSI was 20%, which was equivalent to the historic uh, percentage quoted in the methods. And the Cefoxitin uh, arm had a much higher rate of 33% compared to even the historic uh, percentage. Can you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, we didn't really know what to make of that. Um, if you go back and you look 
through, you look through the data. Uh, what we had a hard time looking at is, is this. So for instance, at UT Southwestern, we're 100% at this point, or pretty darn near 100% uh, minimally invasive or robotic pancreatic odontectomy. So we know that the SSI rate superficially, obviously, is a lot smaller or a lot, a lot much more decreased compared to the open for superficial SSIs. And so there's a component of that too, because it's very hard to, it was very hard to ferret out uh, in the, the historical data that we looked at in NISQIP of breaking out open versus uh, minimally invasive. And, and we elected not to actually look look at that. If you look back through the, the non-NISQIP published data, there were some studies out of UCLA who actually didn't join the study because they years ago made the switch from cephalosporins to zosin. Their data actually institutionally was kind of right on what we found in 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 the trial. So I I think there's that component, and then there's also no matter how unbiased you try to be, there's also a little bit of a a, a collection bias. Um, you know when you know that a trial is up and going. Uh, so I I think. That's probably played a little bit in in combination between the two, to tell you the truth. I think the upshot of it is is this is, is it's a it was a pragmatic trial, uh, meaning that we didn't have blinding uh, within the operating room of Zosin and uh, and Suboxetin. The blind actually it would have been close to we figured uh, roughly about five hundred thousand dollar trial. Um, so we elected not to do that just because of the, the lack of funding for these kind of cool surgical trials. So the fact that the mortality has really fallen after Whipple procedure over the course of the years, I think the morbidity is really what, what you need to target so we can get people on chemotherapy. Kayla, can you take us through, there were some secondary endpoints that we included as well. Yeah, so um, the secondary endpoints that were looked at included 30-day mortality, as well as rate of postoperative sepsis, C. diff colitis, and postoperative pancreatic fistula, grade B and C. The study found that in the Zosin group, there was a, a lower rate of 30-day mortality of 1.3% compared to 2.5% in the Cefoxetin group, although this wasn't statistically significant. And patients in the Zosin group had lower rates of postoperative sepsis, 4.2% compared to 7.5% in the Cefoxetin group. This was significant, as well as decreased rates of C. diff colitis, less than 1% in the Zosin group compared to 3.5% in the uh, Cefoxetin group. And then, uh, interestingly as well, the postoperative pancreatic fistula rate was decreased in the Zosin group, 13% compared to 19%. As someone building my own pancreatic practice now, the 48% relative risk reduction in 30-day mortality and 38% relative risk reduction in postoperative pancreatic fistula was shocking and exciting. Intuitively, it makes sense as perioperative sepsis, typically driven by postoperative pancreatic fistula, uh, is the leading driver of perioperative mortality. But seeing broad-spectrum perioperative antibiotics leading to this type of decrease in postoperative pancreatic fistula was surprising. So, and I know I, I alluded to it before, and and there are some hypotheses that this could because be because of better uh, control of resistant strains of Enterococcus species that have been shown to increase rate of 
pancreatic fistula and anastomotic breakdown. But given this data, I think it's safe to say that I, I think this study will change my practice and I will use Zosin. You heard it here first. At the University of Miami will now be a Zosin place. Right. So this is uh, this is big. It's the first time, I think, in all the years that Dr. Hester and I have interacted that we 100% agree. Oh, we we agree on a lot. <laughs> so, Gilbert, what did you think about what were your take homes uh, take home from the trial after after looking at this as a future budding pancreas surgeon? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like I mentioned earlier, I was expecting a positive finding on the primary endpoint, but the the changes in thirty day mortality, even though they weren't statistically significant, post op pancreatic fistula change, sepsis, and even C diff uh, findings were were surprising and impressive. Um, obviously, I'm biased, but I really wanted to congratulate you and the other co-authors, Dr. Yope, um, being able to ask and answer a question that was important to the community of HPB surgeons, um, and that really was clinically important for patients is an impressive feat to, to not only accomplish, but to accomplish without really any funding. And so kudos to you guys, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your experience, you know, being involved in the planning and the execution of the study and the role for surgeons to kind of, you know, step into this clinical trial space a little bit more. Yeah, I think it was, uh, first of all, thanks, Gilbert. I mean, it was interesting how it all started. And it just literally started at a at a meeting, you know, at the HPBA and the clinical trials committee um, that Dr. D'Angelica had kind of formed and led. And it, it was just kind of brainstorming. And, you know, I think the problem is, is, you know, back in the glory days of surgery, so to speak, especially in surgical oncology 30 years ago, a lot of these trials, these simple trials were done routinely. Uh, you think about the trials with like pylorus preserving versus non-pylorus preserving. You give, you know, you know, all the way up to Peter Allen's trial with octreotide or pasirotide for pancreas resections. So there are surgeon-led trials. I think the problem is, is as surgeons, we, we have a little bit of a a chip on our shoulder thinking we can't do trials because everything's kind of moved into chemotherapy. But the one thing that we have or that we're able to do as surgeons is operate. We take care of patients. We see patients. Um, and as our surgical techniques and our perioperative management has gotten much better, it's an opportunity to really look at things like the quality of life, you know, or things that are going to impact getting folks onto chemotherapy, like you know, SSIs, we see that all the time. You got a whopping, you know, surgical site infection and it's just going to delay chemotherapy a lot of times. So it, it was really kind of a, a cool thing to get involved with. And I think the one thing I'd like to point out is, is there were 26 centers that actually participated. This is unheard of. And it wasn't, you know, a lot of these centers were people who were you know, that we were friendly with um, and we were able to actually kind of cajole into joining, but it created this kind of snowball effect. We would have meetings at the HPBA and present the trial. And I remember the first couple of times we did it, we were given like the worst time. It was like Sunday morning when nobody was there. Uh, and there were like six people in the room and all six of us were the people who were, you know, kind of speaking. And then as the trial got going, as time got going, it became more and more, we get kind of emails from centers that wanted to join because it was a way to actually answer, ask and answer a question. Uh, so the 26 centers, it's just incredible. Um, you know, there were 86 surgeons involved. 
Uh, and it's really, I think, going to hopefully make a difference. The real question will become, just like with any trial, surgical trial or otherwise, you have a randomized trial. Is this going to change, you know, practice? And it'll be interesting to see in the next five years if that NISQIP data shows that they are capturing antibiotic usage. Is it now going to be instead of suboxetin going to zosin? And more importantly, is SCIP going to change their guidelines? For God's sake. You know, is, and I think that should really be a no brainer. I mean, this is a little bit of a mic drop moment in that you have a randomized control trial saying one thing is better than the other, yet Skip still hasn't changed their guidelines. So it's a little bit disappointing from that, that, uh, from that point of view. And then the final thing is, is the NISQIP platform. So we're in the process of rolling out our, our companion or our second trial using the NISQIP platform, and that will be giving, following off the chat balls, single institution trial at the University of Calgary, trying to reduce the perioperative morbidity for major hepatectomy by giving uh, steroid, one dose of high-dose steroid in the, in the preoperative period, and again, using the NISQIP platform. So NISQIP was supposed to be a QI project, um, but I think it's a good way to actually take it to the next step and not be descriptive of, hey, you know, certain things are better in certain groups of patients, but actually say, hey, we're going to use this data to actually make a difference to our patients' lives. So can't be any, it was, you know, incredibly, it was, it was cool. So that's all I got to say about that. I want to comment that I think this trial has really impacted me because I've always been very interested in clinical trial design and I want to design and run clinical trials in the future. And I've always assumed that being a, a pancreas surgical oncologist, that those trials need to be oncology oriented. And this trial really showed me that there are other ways that we can get positive trials that can truly impact our patients. I think getting these patients through the bulls are very difficult in the, in the perioperative, especially the postoperative two-week period. And this trial is something that has shown a significant improvement in, in patients, you know, morbidity and, and potentially mortality. And I, I want to applaud you guys because I think this is just amazing. Thanks. I'm going to give Gilbert and then Caitlin the last two words. Yeah. I mean, you, you led off with, this is uh, Dr. Hester's favorite operation. And so, you know, it's, it's almost fortuitous that uh, the study came out just in time for our final podcast uh, as the BTK Surgical Oncology team. And so I just hope that our listeners have gotten a little taste of, you know, the best subspecialty in surgery, in my opinion, and, and gotten to hear our banner and our talks about the thought process and the things that, that make this field so exciting. And so I've, I've had a great time and um, really enjoyed and learned a lot working with the two of you. And so I'm um, looking forward to hearing what the next teams from BTK have to say and, um, and, and picking Dr. Hester's brain as she gets her practice up and going and started. Yeah, this has uh, been an exciting two years for me. Uh, I've transitioned from fellowship now to young attending life, and I feel like things are coming full circle. I feel like it was just yesterday when I was uh, a PGY4 and a PGY5 operating with Dr. Yoke, and I was just learning. And now I'm the one uh, teaching residents, and I have residents and med students come into the room, and they've listened to these podcasts, and they talk about it, and it's so exciting um, that I'm getting to teach the next generation, just like Dr. Yoke taught me. And I just want to thank uh, the Behind the Knife uh, Nation 
it's been really exciting that all of our episodes have gotten over 20,000 listens. Um, that's really, really cool. And I'm glad everyone's interested in surgical oncology. Agree. Thank you so much to everybody who's listened. And I guess we'll do our official sign off. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.